History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello and welcome to History Tea Time. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Queens of Europe Isabella of France, Queen of England At just 12 years old, Isabella married King Edward II of England. He had no interest in a wife preferring the company of his male favorites who manipulated him to gain power. After suffering 20 years of ill treatment, Queen Isabella hatched a plot, invaded England with her lover, seized the throne in the name of her son, and had her husband murdered. Isabella was born sometime between May and November of the year 1295. She was the daughter of King Philip IV of France, an unusually dispassionate man who through cunning and calculation amassed a great deal of wealth, power, and land. Through ambition and bloodshed, he transformed France from a loose collection of feudal duchies into a strong central state. He also placed relatives on foreign thrones, bringing Naples and Hungary under his influence and nearly achieving the same in the Holy Roman Empire. A remarkably handsome man, he was known as Philip the Fair. His wife and queen, Joan I of Navarre, was conversely plain and plump, but what she lacked in beauty she made up for in courage and intelligence. Joan was queen in her own right in Navarre, a small kingdom in the north of modern-day Spain, and Countess of Champagne in France. Philip and Joan were married when they were 16 and 11, respectively, and having grown up together, they became very close and dedicated to one another. Joan was a proud and magnificent queen, who skillfully held sway at the sophisticated French court and acted as her husband's regent when he was away pursuing his militaristic ambitions. Of the couple's four children, three sons would all grow up to be kings of France in quick succession. Their only daughter, Isabella, inherited her father's good looks and cunning and her mother's intelligence, boldness, and charm. She grew up in the example of a mighty king who kept an iron grip on his country and was devoted to his wife, a majestic and commanding queen. And this was what she expected of her own marriage when at just 12, shortly following her mother's death, she was shipped off to England to marry the newly ascended King Edward II. But that's certainly not what she found. 
Edward II was the son of famous warrior king Edward I, known as Longshanks for his imposing height at 6'2", and as Hammer of the Scots for his love of war. Edward Sr. kept his people under tight control through a series of grueling military campaigns. He conquered Wales and spiked the Welsh prince's heads on the Tower of London. He made the Jewish people a scapegoat for the ills of his nation, forced them to wear yellow stars, and executed their leaders, finally expelling all the Jews from England and confiscating their property. Next, he dedicated himself to completing his dominance of the Isle of Britannia by conquering Scotland. He imprisoned the king and stole the mystic Stone of Schoon, on which kings of Scotland had been crowned for centuries. Edward placed the stone in his own coronation chair, where it was last used during the coronation of the current queen, Elizabeth II. A fierce warrior on the battlefield, Edward was, in contrast, a dedicated husband to his queen, Eleanor of Castile, with whom he shared a passionate and jovial relationship. Edward I was everything a medieval king was expected to be, while his son was a constant disappointment to him. Prince Edward had no interest in war, preferring to remain at court, listening to music and poetry. Edward Sr. tried to change his son's character by forcing him to go on campaign and assigning him a squire who excelled in tournaments, Piers Gaveston. But this plan backfired spectacularly when the prince and Gaveston fell in love. Outraged, the king banished his son's lover. At the end of Edward I's life, the Scots, under the command of warrior William Wallace, rose up against the English, forcing them south of the border. King Edward died before he could strike back and complete his conquest. His deathbed wish was that his son march north, carrying his heart and bones in a chest at the head of the army, to defeat the Scots once and for all. He didn't get his wish. With his father out of the way, the newly minted King Edward II invited his lover, Piers Gaveston, back to court, and together they indulged their appetites for wealth and finery. It was said that Gaveston dressed himself so magnificently that he more resembled the god Mars than an ordinary mortal. It was into this romantic entanglement that 12-year-old Isabella entered when she was called to England in 1308 to fulfill the treaty between England and France by marrying the 24-year-old king. Isabella was described as the beauty of beauties in the kingdom, if not in all of Europe. She dressed according to the magnificence of her position and flaunted her sense of French fashion with an impressive wardrobe rich in velvets, taffeta, and furs. She owned 72 headdresses. Edward agreed that his wife was pretty, but he had little interest in her. Things started off on a bad foot for the couple. At their wedding feast, Edward ignored his new bride and sat next to Gaveston instead. Isabella's French uncles left in an outrage when the king gave their wedding presents to his lover. One guest remarked, I do not remember to have heard that one man so loved another. 
A month later, when Edward and Isabella were crowned king and queen at Westminster Abbey, Gaveston flaunted his influence and wore the queen's own wedding jewelry to the celebration. Edward granted him the coveted honor of carrying the royal crown into the abbey. Isabella may have been young, but she knew how a queen should be treated, and she was deeply insulted and humiliated by her new husband. But without the support of her spouse, an unconsummated marriage, and certainly no chance of delivering an heir, the young queen was in a precarious position. She decided to make the best of the menage a trois in which she found herself, using all her charm and affability to endear herself to both her husband and Gaveston. She accepted, or at least looked the other way, at their homosexual relationship at the time considered a great sin and condemned by the church. The English barons, on the other hand, were not so accepting and were growing increasingly outraged at the king's behavior, disinterest in ruling, and lack of leadership. A feudal king couldn't rule without the support of his vassals, but Edward was so wrapped up in his relationship with Gaveston that he neglected these powerful nobles to which he owed his position. An outraged group of barons came to Parliament and demanded that the king allow 21 of them to take over the rule of the nation and banish his favorite. Edward had little choice but to accept their terms, but within two months he left London to reunite with his lover, and he dragged Isabella along with him. The now 16-year-old queen must have spent some time with her husband as she was pregnant with their first child. The odd trio traveled around the north of England with a group of barons in hot pursuit, determined to put Gaveston to death. They got their chance when the royal party was briefly separated. The barons besieged Gaveston in Scarborough, eventually starving him out and taking him prisoner. Gaveston had with him a large collection of gold, silver, and gems, which the barons accused him of stealing from the crown. Edward, fortified with Isabella in York, was consumed with anxiety, but unable to help his lover. The nobles condemned Gaveston to death in a show trial, ran him through his swords, and beheaded him. When the king received the news, he was heartbroken. He and Isabella returned home to Windsor, where she gave birth to their first child, a son, Edward. Now as the mother of the heir, her position and power were greatly improved, and she might have hoped that with her romantic rival out of the picture, she could take her rightful place at the king's side. She used the traditional role of the medieval queen as peacemaker to forge a brittle truce between the king and his barons. But before long, Edward undermined her efforts. He finally decided to fulfill his father's dying wish and march north to conquer Scotland. But he was not the commander his father had been. In 1314, at the Battle of Bannockburn, Edward's army was sacked by the Scots under the command of their new king, Robert the Bruce. This was the most humiliating defeat suffered by any English king to date, and the barons' hatred for Edward multiplied. To make matters worse, the following year, bad weather caused a devastating famine throughout Europe, and the English people blamed their king's immorality for their misery. Oblivious to the mounting problems in his kingdom, Edward found a new favorite, 
Hugh de Spencer the Younger. Isabella had been able to get along with Piers Gaveston, but it quickly became clear that de Spencer was not willing to share the king with his wife. And where Gaveston had been content to indulge himself in the king's love and the wealth and finery that came with it, Hugh de Spencer was a political predator. Unlike Gaveston, there was little evidence that de Spencer was actually the king's lover, but he manipulated Edward's obsession with him in pursuit of wealth and power. Isabella continued to fulfill her role as a faithful queen, giving birth to three more children, John, Eleanor, and Joan. She watched in horror as Dispenser convinced her husband to go on the march in a large-scale act of revenge against the barons for murdering Piers Gaveston. The king and Dispenser showed no mercy. They imprisoned the offending barons' wives and children and left the barons' corpses to rot on gallows across the country. And the king handed all the spoils confiscated from the nobles and their families over to Dispenser. The new royal favorite recognized Isabella's potential as a threat. He made efforts to come between the king and his wife, poisoning him against her. There is even evidence that Dispenser may have assaulted the queen in an effort to keep her submissive and under his control. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. In 1322, King Edward and Hugh de Spencer decided to make yet another ill-advised attempt to claim Scotland. With the Queen in tow, they set out on campaign, but were once again forced to retreat. With the Scottish army closing in on them, Edward and de Spencer fled Tynemouth Priory, where they had sought shelter, abandoning Isabella there. 
She begged her husband to return and rescue her, but she was ignored as the castle came under attack. The queen's household knights fended off the Scottish army while she escaped on a ship. Several of her men and two of her ladies-in-waiting were killed in the battle. Isabella was so furious with her husband that she took a 10-month pilgrimage around the country by herself to cool off. While she was away, tensions were heating up between England and Isabella's homeland, France. England had held the region of Gascony in southern France since Edward's mother, Eleanor of Castile, brought it with her as part of her marriage treaty. But Isabella's brother, now King Philip V of France, was threatening to take it back. By the time Isabella returned to London, England and France were on the verge of war, and Edward had ordered the arrest of all French people living in England. He demanded that his wife swear an oath of loyalty to Hugh Dispenser. She refused. So Edward and Dispenser confiscated all of the Queen's land and property and arrested her servants. They even took her four children away from her and placed them in the care of the Dispenser family. This was the final straw. Isabella had tried for 16 years to be a good wife and queen and had been continually beaten down. But she was cunning in the face of defeat. She kept a straight face with her husband and offered to act as his emissary to her brother. Edward and Dispenser believed that after taking so much abuse, the queen was their loyal lapdog. So they sent her to France. Isabella wrote back to her husband that she had negotiated favorable peace terms with the French king, but that in order to seal the agreement, their eldest son and heir, 13-year-old Prince Edward, must travel to Paris to pay homage to his uncle. Once he was with his mother, Isabella refused to send him back. He would be a keystone in her plans. She wrote back to her husband in open defiance, declaring that she would not return until the man who had come between them was removed. While living at court in Paris, Isabella met a striking English knight, Roger Mortimer, who had escaped when his family had run afoul of the dispensers and his father was executed. The pair had a deep passion and shared love of literature and art and a hatred of King Edward and Hugh Dispenser. Isabella was taking a great risk by having an affair with Mortimer. Female adultery was a serious sin in the Middle Ages. Her sister-in-law had recently died in prison after being found guilty of the offense. But the relationship was a risk she was willing to take, and together she and Mortimer began to hatch a plot. Isabella betrothed her son Edward to Philippa, the daughter of William I, Count of Hainaut, in the modern-day Netherlands. And with his support and substantial dowry, she raised an army. In 1326, at the head of 100 ships filled with soldiers, Queen Isabella, Roger Mortimer, and Prince Edward set sail for England. The queen had no right to the English throne on her own, but as she was fighting on her son's behalf, the English people, exhausted under the king's tyrannical rule, welcomed her as a liberator. The rebel queen and her army met no resistance as they marched towards London. 
King Edward and Dispenser filled their saddlebags with gold and fled the capital, desperately riding west. They were captured in Wales a few days later, bedraggled and exhausted. Isabella had Hugh Dispenser brought before her. In punishment for his crimes, she had him hanged, disemboweled, and castrated while still alive, and finally beheaded. In Parliament, it was declared that King Edward II had forfeited the allegiance of his people, and that from that moment on, his 13-year-old son would rule as King Edward III. For good measure, the former king was forced to sign papers of abdication and was imprisoned at Barclay Castle. He was treated well in the beginning and lived in relative luxury, though under tight security. But England had never had a living ex-king, and this was only the second time that a woman had been in charge. Many were unwilling to accept this new regime. Within a year, three plots to restore Edward II to his throne were uncovered, and Edward himself attempted to escape his guards. To secure her position, Isabella had little choice but to dispose of her husband. In 1377, the death of the 64-year-old king was announced. Legend has it that he was impaled through the anus with a red-hot poker, burning him alive from the inside. This grisly rumor was immortalized 200 years later by Christopher Marlowe in his play about Edward's life. But this ghastly means of murder is thought by historians more likely the result of medieval homophobia than the actual method by which King Edward was secretly killed. Dowager Queen Isabella and Roger Mortimer ruled England in the name of teenage King Edward III for four years. After 16 years of watching her husband's favorites enrich themselves and occupy the place of prominence she believed was rightfully hers, Isabella let her pride and greed lure her vision. She and Mortimer went on a spending spree with the royal treasury, adorning themselves in fine clothes and jewels, living luxuriously and seizing land and wealth to support their new expensive lifestyle. She made peace with Scotland and betrothed her youngest daughter, Joan, to the future King David II of Scotland. But this end to hostilities was unpopular with the English, who had already invested so much in the fight to conquer their northern neighbors. The barons who had once seen the lovers as liberators now saw them as no better than Edward II and Hugh Dispenser. By 1330, King Edward III had grown from an impressionable boy to a young man of 17. He chafed against his mother and Mortimer's control over the country that was rightfully his. He decided that the time had come to take back his throne. He rallied a group of 23 loyal knights, and together they entered Nottingham Castle by way of a secret tunnel. They surprised Isabella and Mortimer and took them captive. Isabella cried, Fair son, have pity on gentle Mortimer. But he did not. Roger Mortimer was put on trial for treason and found guilty of killing the last king and usurping the power of the new one. He was hanged at Tyburn. On his mother's behalf, King Edward ordered that Mortimer be spared drawing and quartering. 
But Edward had no intention of harming his own mother. The Dowager Queen was portrayed to the public as an innocent pawn in Mortimer's evil plot. Isabella suffered a nervous breakdown after the death of her lover, but the resilient queen recovered and offered her son her support. She was forced to relinquish the vast estates she and Mortimer had seized, and she was kept under house arrest for a short time. Edward gave his mother a generous allowance and kept her in luxury with minstrels, grooms, and fine food and clothing fit for the queen mother. Isabella spent the remaining 28 years of her life as a jovial and affable fixture at her son's court. She doted on her grandchildren and was especially close to her youngest daughter, Joan, who lived with her mother after leaving her adulterous husband, King David II of Scotland. Isabella was friendly with the children of Roger Mortimer and convinced her son to restore their land and title. In her 60s, she remained a fashion icon, appearing at the St. George's Day Feast of 1358, wearing a silver silk dress bejeweled with 300 rubies and 1,800 pearls, with a circlet of gold around her head. She also took an interest in astrology and geometry. She died at the age of 63 and was laid to rest at the Franciscan Church at Newgate in London. Per her request, she was buried in the headdress she had worn on her wedding day, and her husband, King Edward II's heart, preserved in a small casket 30 years earlier, was placed in her coffin with her. Centuries after her death, Isabella was portrayed by Christopher Marlowe and others as a ferocious and unnatural woman for daring to grasp at power. She was dubbed the She-Wolf of France. And while she certainly wasn't without her faults, her husband Edward was hardly an innocent victim. His blind romantic obsessions, arrogance, and scorn towards his people were at the root of his downfall. Isabella achieved a feat unprecedented in English history. She dethroned an anointed king and ruled for four years, the longest any woman had been able to hold the reins of power in England. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I'll be putting out new episodes every Tuesday, revisiting and revamping my most popular YouTube videos, unburying some of my favorite hidden gems, and adding even more fascinating information for your listening pleasure. Want some visuals with your history? Then check out my YouTube channel, History Tea Time with Lindsay Holiday, where you can find hundreds of videos about queens of the world, royal history, women's history, and more. You can also follow History Tea Time on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like Queen's Podcast, Ancient History Fangirl, Redacted History, and more. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.